You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Good morning, church. I'm stoked to be with you here today. I'm excited for what we're going to do. I think what we're going to do today is probably going to be a unique experience for most of us in our in our church histories, and I think it'll be a little a little a little weird, but I'm 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 glad for it. I think it's going to be good. So we're going to be continuing our study today of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 38. You can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you today, I'd encourage you to grab one of our house Bibles. We, uh, man, we just really, really believe in the importance of God's people having access to God's Word. So if you, if you don't have access to a hard copy of the Bible, if you're visiting with us today, if this whole Christian thing is new to you, please grab one of those. Just take them home. Or, or better yet, talk to one of our elders and we'll, we'll get you one with less coffee stains on it. But we, uh, we, just, we just think that's important. While you guys are turning there, um, I want to I wanna let you know of just something that's, that's kind of coming up. I think it's going to be really fun. So this is, we're gonna, uh, after today, we're going to hit pause on the Gospel of Mark for the whole month of September. And we do this every now and again where we, we normally, Red Tree goes through books of the Bible verse by verse. And Every a few times a year, we, we hit pause and we go through um, a short, just kind of topical series, something that, that the elders feel uh, specifically called to in, in each individual church body, and it gives each of our three churches a chance to kind of recalibrate and focus in on some, some stuff that's specific needs in their congregations. And so we're going to be doing a little, a little miniature series in September that we're calling No Bench, and I think it's going to be really, really good. I'm stoked for it. My hope is that we will wander into October bruised and battered from what the Holy Spirit does to us in September, but uh, encouraged, encouraged all the more by it. So um, that's that's what's coming up. But but today we're we're in Mark and we'll jump back into Mark once we hit October. So we're in Mark chapter nine, and starting in the thirty eighth verse of the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, we hear this. John said to him, him being Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And this is the word of the Lord. So this is a short passage, right, by, by Red, Tree, Red Tree standards. We're, we're, we're zoning in on a very specific teaching of Jesus here. And, and so what I'd like for us to do today is, is pick this apart. We're going to do what we normally do. We're going to look at a couple uh, textual ideas that we might miss, a, a couple historical ideas that we might miss. And I think that's going to lead us to a larger idea. But, but guys, I, I just want to say from the get-go on this, that part of the reason we zoned in on, on this specific kind of little saying of Jesus in this larger section of his teaching is that, man, we just, we just believe that God has something to say to us today about our tribalism. Our pastors believe firmly that, that man, Jesus and his gospel says something about our tendency to look inward and, and just huddle up with the people that look and sound and act like us. 
And so today we want to we be open in our hearts to actually submitting that idea to Christ and to his gospel and see what he does with it. That sound good? So we're going to dig through this. That's going to lead us to a couple teachings from Paul in the New Testament, and that'll, that'll lead us and we'll end out our time with communion today. I think it'll be good. So remember, uh, we're, we're jumping into this larger section of Mark, this, this section of Mark that kind of encapsulates chapters 8, 9, and 10. This is this section where Jesus is traveling from the area where he's done the majority of his ministry, northern Palestine in Galilee. He's traveling down or up to Jerusalem. He's traveling to Jerusalem for the last time to face the religious leaders and ultimately face his own execution and then resurrection. And so he's making his way down. And over the course of this journey, Mark has kind of ordered this section of the book around these three predictions where Jesus prophesies about his own death and his own resurrection. And everyone has no clue what to do with it. So as they're making this journey, Jesus, if you remember, has finally kind of let the cat out of the bag. He has confirmed out loud, yes, in fact, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And everyone's super stoked. And they're just going, this is awesome. We're going to Jerusalem. We're with the Messiah. Things are about to go crazy. And as they're doing this, Jesus is like, no, don't get too excited. When we get there, they're going to kill me. And everyone's like, I don't know what to do with that, but this is really awesome. And so that's kind of what we have. And Mark has ordered it around these these three scenes where Jesus predicts his death, predicts his resurrection. His disciples completely misunderstand what he's talking about. They don't have a category for this idea. And then they behave in some way that is completely counter to what Jesus is actually teaching about the kingdom. And then Jesus gives a few specific teachings. He's, he's narrowing in now. He's focusing in as they're, as they're walking toward the cross and getting closer to, to, to Good Friday. Jesus is really specifically narrowing in on what kingdom life is like. And so we've seen two of these predictions so far, and I want to I kind of set the story for us. So remember, this section of Mark started in the northernmost part of Palestine, in an area called Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus uh, took some of his followers up on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And they saw Jesus in his glorified self. They saw this peace of heaven, right? As Jesus has said, Yes, I'm the Christ. You don't know what that actually means. I'm actually going to suffer and die. And, and everyone's like, that's not possibly how that works. And Peter even rebukes Jesus. And Jesus goes, are you don't believe me? Come here. Come on, let me show you something. Takes them up on the mountain, shows them a bit of heaven. They freak out, as you do. And then they come back down. And we, we end up with this scene that, that is really, really interesting. And is going to kind of set the context for, for our text today. So they come back down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus only took Peter, James, and John with him. And they meet up with the rest of the group and they find them amongst a crowd of people in some trouble. There's a demon-possessed boy and his father is begging for freedom for his boy. And the nine can't do it. They can't get this demon out. And so there's this whole scene. Remember Matt, Matt Swearingen from Apostles Church came and walked us through this scene where the dad is desperate. He comes to Jesus and Jesus rebukes the spirit. He frees the boy. He heals him. And then when his tw- the 12 are like, what, what happened? Jesus' response is, essentially, that one can only come out when you rely on, when you rely on God through prayer. It, 
You can't do that out of your own strength. You, you can't. You have to rely on God for that sort of thing. And they kind of go, huh. And then they keep going. And, and Jesus gives another prediction of his death, and, and they misunderstand it. And Jesus then kind of, at this point, they've made their way down back into Galilee, back into Capernaum, kind of Jesus' home base during most of his ministry. And Jesus kind of once again zones in on this idea where he goes, listen, 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 listen. Kingdom life is about serving others. Before, like the first time, right, he was like, kingdom life is not about winning by the world's standards. It's actually about losing by the world's standards. You're not going to conquer Rome. Rome's going to conquer us, but the kingdom will conquer everything. And now he says, listen, 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 the kingdom is not about being great and having authority and power. It's actually about humbly serving others. You're not going to be thought of as awesome. You're actually going to be humble and lowly, and you're going to serve people that the world deems worthless. And that sets the stage for this text. Remember, the the apostles were arguing over which one of them was the greatest, right? And Jesus calls them out with this beautiful illustration where he he grabs this little toddler and brings him in and it's like, listen, if you want to be great, if you want to be a kingdom person, serve and welcome and love people like this, people that our world completely ignores. That's, that's what this looks like. And then our text picks up immediately after that, where John speaks up, and he goes, interesting, so anyway, Jesus, <laughs> so anyway, we saw this guy, and he was out casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. Cool, right? We got him out of here. And Jesus rebukes him. No, no, what are you thinking? No. No, don't stop him. And, and I don't want to... I, I, love, I love the setup for this scene because at first, it seems like this is just kind of abrupt subject change, right? Like, John, are you just avoiding the fact that Jesus called you guys out? Probably, right? Like, that's probably part of it. But, but I think this actually makes sense. And so to, to, to get that, we have, to, we have to put this in some of the cultural context. So the whole idea, the, the disciples, and John specifically, by the way, I love this. This is actually the only time that Mark records John specifically saying something, and it's something really stupid, which I just think is great. <laughs> uh, but, but we actually see that in this section, right? Because Peter, James, and John are kind of Jesus's innermost circle, and at the high point of Jesus's ministry, Mark goes out of his way to let us know that Jesus's closest friends and most honored followers completely miss the point. You have Peter rebuking him, John putting his foot in his mouth, and then later, James and John together collectively trying to cut all the other disciples out of the sweet heaven action. It's, it's, it's pretty great, but John here, in his, own, his one line in Mark, just completely beefs it, and, and it's great, but it actually makes sense. So John has rebuked this exorcist, right? Which, in our day, that's not exactly a common profession. I don't know how many of us are, are friends with any exorcists or have any connections with the exorcist union, but it's not as common a practice in our day. But in this day, it actually was an accepted trait. Remember, you have to, you're putting yourself in a, a, a pre-modern world with very little access um, to medical science and, and things of that nature. And they had a much clearer understanding of the reality of the spiritual world. 
And so in that regard, in, in Mark's day and in, in Palestine at that time, everything was considered spiritual warfare. And we might look down on that and think about how smart we are because we've advanced medical science and we understand that colds aren't actually demons, they're just colds. But, uh, you know, maybe we're just blind to it. Who knows? I'm not going to push on that button today. But uh, for real, this, this understanding in this world was that spiritual warfare is real. And when we experience the effects of the curse, well, God is good. God, as, as we read from the Psalms this morning, God is good and God cares for his people. He doesn't put pain and suffering upon his people. That comes from the curse. That comes from the evil one. That comes from Satan himself. So if our well is bringing up water that makes people sick, well, God wouldn't do that. That must be the forces of Satan. And so we have good, reliable historical evidence that in Jewish culture in this day, the traveling exorcist was a really common worker. They would go from village to village and city to city, speaking truth and, and calling out spiritual warfare and practical areas of life, people who are sick or suffering from mental illness or crops that won't grow or wells that give bad water, they they would come and they would speak the truth of Scripture over these things and and demand that evil spirits leave. And it's really interesting if you read some of the literature concerning this job and this kind of exorcism culture is there were these these people weren't idiots. They weren't like just yokels. They they understood that there was more to the world than just evil spirits, but they also really believed that spiritual warfare is real. And so they would try those things with the understanding that eh, sometimes it might just be a bad well, but we want to we make sure that this isn't Satan trying to mess up our whole community and draw us away. And so they would try, but the, they would try with the understanding that oftentimes they just misread the situation or it didn't work, or maybe the exorcist just wasn't in tune enough with the power of God. And so it was kind of this understanding that exorcism is real and important, but sometimes it doesn't work, right? And this is, this is kind of an accepted thing in this day. And so this exorcist, this lone exorcist that John has rebuked, he starts casting out demons in Jesus' name, which is interesting. It, it makes total sense. This dude's livelihood is based on going around trying to protect people from spiritual warfare. He hears about this guy, Jesus. He probably goes and sees him and his followers do work, and he realizes, hey, that works, right? That works. They don't have like a 30% success rate. They're just like, they're slaying it over there with Jesus. Let's, let's get in on this. And so he starts invoking Jesus' name, authority, and power to cast out demons. Why? Because it works, which is a whole nother discussion in and of itself. But it does. And it's interesting that this upsets John, right? Now, we want to, listen, we want to assume the best in our brother John. And I think there probably is some truth to the fact that, I mean, John was concerned with Jesus' reputation and with the purity of the message of the kingdom. These are men who have given their lives and sacrificed a ton to follow after Jesus, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, who who really care about his proclamation of God's kingdom come and repenting in belief. They really care about that. And so when some rando who has no connection to them, who hasn't been following Jesus and submitting to his teaching, begins invoking Jesus' name and placing Jesus' reputation on his work as a traveling expert, 
exorcist, it makes a ton of sense that John is concerned about this. Hey, you can't do that. You're not one of us. You're not actually a follower of Jesus. Stop it. Right? But there's another piece to this too, because as much as we want to give John the benefit of the doubt, we also realize that the apostles were selfish, sinful people. So if you, if you remember back in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus, or well, actually, yeah, Mark chapter 2, when Jesus called the first disciples, when he called the twelve specifically, I love this. That's not Mark 2. Guys, I should read my notes when I'm trying to do this. Mark 3. <laughs> Neither of the ones I said. Mark 3 and 14, he appointed 12 of whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. See, this exorcism ministry that, by the way, was a really practical mercy ministry in this day, helping people who were suffering and hurting by forces they didn't understand, This practical mercy exorcism ministry is a part of Jesus' calling on the twelve from the moment he calls them. When Jesus names them apostles, he does so by saying, you're going to preach the word and you're going to cast out evil spirits. That's what we're going to do. We're going to proclaim this message and we're going to heal hurting people. And we're going to help people who are hurting. We're going to proclaim the kingdom and help hurting people. Go! And he does that in Mark chapter 6. He sends them out. You've traveled with me. You've seen me cast out demons. You've seen me heal the hurting. You've seen me proclaim the kingdom. So you guys pair off and go get work done. And they do. And I love this. I love this. In verse 13 of chapter 6, or I'll start in verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. These guys went out, essentially, in that world's understanding, as traveling miracle workers or traveling exorcists, proclaiming Jesus' message, and it worked. That's why we read in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, when they came back, they were so just excited and exhausted to like get with Jesus and and talk about their, their time ministering because it worked. They went out and in the name of Jesus, they healed the sick and they cast out demons and they proclaimed the kingdom. These guys, by the time we get to them in Mark chapter 9 in our text today, these guys are seasoned exorcists, Right? How many of you guys thought we'd be using the word exorcist like 85 times in a sermon today? Woke up this morning and you're like, here it comes. This is that Sunday. (laughs) These guys are seasoned exorcists at this point. They understand this world and they also understand the supernatural power of the authority and name of Jesus Christ. And so when this guy shows up out of nowhere and grabs a hold of Jesus' name for these practical reasons that it works, well, it upsets the disciples. It upsets John because, well, he wants to protect the purity of the message. But it also upsets John because of the passage we just finished. They were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, we like to think about that passage in this vague sense of guys walking along and being like, I'm cooler than you. 
But that's 100% not what it was. Think about the progression of the story. Jesus takes the three, his special ones, his closest friends, up on the mountain. They get a glimpse of heaven. And when they come down, here's the nine flailing and failing to do what? Cast out a demon. The stuff they've been doing for a long time by now. Old hat stuff. And when they go to Jesus and they go, why didn't it work? Note that they're surprised, right? Because it has worked for them up to this point. Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer. Which has to feel like a dig if you're the nine, right? Like, are you implying that we don't pray? But Jesus is saying you have to, and you have to be in reliance for God, on God for this to actually work. Now imagine the scene as they're walking along. And you've got good old Bart. It's got to be Bartholomew. He's always my, my go-to, kicking. You've got good old Bart walking along going, man, I just, I don't get it. When I went out traveling with Thomas, like, it just worked. Like, every, every time we spoke in Jesus' name, it just, it just worked. And that, I was just stuck, and I, it, just, it just didn't work. And then John kind of moses up beside him, and he's like, yeah, it is funny how that didn't work, huh? You know, I've uh, got a 100% success ratio at this point. <laughs> Me and James, we got out there just kicking demon butt. But, you know, I mean, we are kind of like the A number one disciples, you know. We're in the three, right? They're arguing over who is the greatest miracle worker. Who, who is best in line with Jesus' message in his kingdom? Who has the most of Jesus' authority and power to do these works and do these miracles? And Jesus shuts them down and just goes, man, if you're arguing about which one of you is the best, you don't even get it. You don't even get it. Which makes sense at that point why John kind of changes the subject and goes, well, wait a minute. What about this guy? If you're telling us that there's no point in arguing over which one of us is the best and there's no hierarchy, there's no like, this is my, this is my dude and the rest of these guys are just kind of lieutenants. If that doesn't, what about this dude? Because he was out casting demons out in your name and he's not even one of us. He hasn't even done the work. He hasn't even followed, he hasn't even left his job. He's just using your name. We're like sacrificing for the kingdom. So I rebuked him, right? And Jesus just goes, no, man, no. It's not how that works. And I love this picture. I love Jesus' response. Where he says, where he says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. I love this. Jesus says, don't, don't stop him. It doesn't matter that he's an outsider. And, and look at his reasoning. If he invokes my name and my authority and does a miracle, that's going to mess with him. If he invokes the name of Jesus and a demon shudders and submits to him and runs away, then he's going to know there's something to my message. He's not going to be able to speak ill of me if he's out using my name and conquering the forces of evil. So don't rebuke him. And then I love this. No, no, even the people who just give you a drink of water, they're not going to lose their reward. 
God knows who they are. And again, put this, put this in the context of this larger ministry the 12 have been doing. When Jesus sent them out in chapter 6, he gave them really specific instructions. You're going to go out and you're going to preach and you're going to heal and you're going to cast out demons, but don't take any money. Don't take any provisions. Don't take any food, any water, any extra clothes. Go town to town and let the people provide for you because God is working. So if someone opens their home to you and they give you food and water, you just stay there until your work is done there. And you move village to village and let God provide for you. What Jesus is saying here is, man, you think you were awesome because you were out going doing miracles? That wasn't you. God orchestrated that whole thing. You think that just because you were the one casting out the demon, that you were the star of that show? God was working in the hearts of people through hospitality to even give you food to eat and water to drink. God was working through all those people. You think because you got the cheers, that makes you like the captain? No, dude. That's not how the kingdom works. So Jesus just dismantles this idea of being the star of being the one who gets the attention, of being the one who's the most right, the most loved. He just dismantles it and goes, no, no. God was working through all those people when you were traveling. And if someone uses my name and, man, and it works, that's going to draw them to truth. You see, beloved, Jesus is just tackling this natural human propensity towards tribalism. This idea that, that when you stick together with like people, things are better. Because this is essentially what the apostles are experiencing. They're Jesus' closest allies. They're the ones who are in the truth, in the kingdom. They were chosen by name. They were given authority and power to do the work. They're the rock stars. And Jesus says, no, not at all. You may be the ones that God's using to do that ministry. But God is working. God is working in hearts. And God is moving his kingdom forward. And it's not about you guys. And when you think it is, man, you're, you're dismantling the whole thing. You're breaking this whole thing. If you think it's about you guys being awesome miracle workers, that's so short-sighted. This, this message... I think, it, I think it directly comes home to us. I think it pushes us right in some areas of idolatry, if I'm being honest. And, 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 and here's the thing, too. Like, I mean, this was a sharp message for the early church, for the persecuted church, where, where there was a sharp distinction between how Jewish Christians and how Gentile Christians were treated in, in certain areas and certain cultures. Like, this had a sharp message for them that, man... It's not about your tribe, it's about Jesus. And that's, that's it's powerful, and we could spend a whole day just talking about that. But, but I want to I get to where this, this cuts us today at Red Tree Church in 2018. The reality is, God is doing a work bigger than this church in this room. God is doing a work bigger than our faith tradition. And that's weird to think about. You see... And this pushes us on this idea of, of basically like, who's the best church? Who's the most right church? 
know, there are churches all over West County. All over West County. They're everywhere. They're on like every other corner. This is one of the most churched areas in all of the St. Louis metroplex. And St. Louis is pretty churched for a metroplex. Like we're, we're pretty up there in terms of church accessibility and church engagement. And when you talk about the population of West County, kind of De Pere, Manchester, Chesterfield, Wildwood, Baldwin, Ellisville, these, these kind of areas, when you talk about these areas, we have some of the highest percentage of churchgoers of the entire city. Or, metro, or metroplex. There's a, there's a lot of churches around here. And the reality is, we would disagree with a lot of those churches. Most of those churches. Right? We would disagree with most of those churches about stuff that we think is actually really important. And yet, there seems to be, in the words of Jesus here, uh, just a little bit of a knife's edge for us. A little bit of a cut for us today, right? That says, don't tell them to stop. For no one, no one who does a mighty work in my name can soon thereafter say evil of me. Right? There seems to be this this cut in the words that, that strikes us right in our conservative, evangelical, reformed little hearts. Because the reality is, We are the church we are, and you are at the church you are at, most likely because you are convicted about some of the truths of our doctrines. You're passionate about them. And you should be. But does that mean that we are right and everyone else is wrong? This is something we have to chew on. And and I want to put a couple just kind of caveats around this discussion, right? So, So really quick, when you start talking about having a kingdom, a larger kingdom perspective instead of being so zoned in on your own tribe, when you start having that discussion, it can really raise this question of, I mean, does that mean that doctrine doesn't matter? Does that downplay the importance of doctrine? Not at all. In fact, doctrine is incredibly important. That's, I mean, gosh, that's one of the things that kind of makes red tree red tree as we really stand on the importance of the word of doctrine is kind of the teachings that are distilled out of the word right we that stuff's incredibly important because if you don't have right doctrine you don't have the right jesus and if you don't have the right jesus you don't have salvation and so that stuff's important so how do we wade through that there's there's this concept if you guys have been in a roots class in recent history you've heard this and if you haven't been in a roots class in recent history I would really encourage you to go on Red Tree's website and find the little PDF of our statement of belief and read it because there's this distinction here that's really important there's a term we use it's called closed-handed doctrines and open-handed doctrines or primary doctrines and tertiary doctrines the idea is there are some truths that the Bible teaches that if you cannot affirm those things, you are not within the realm of what we call Christianity. And we can't, we can't just be okay with that. We can't call that Christianity when it isn't. But there are other things that are open-handed doctrines. These are doctrines that our elders, our pastors, have done their best to discern and pray and read through the scriptures and have landed on convictions about interpretations of passages. And we believe these best reflect the teaching of the Bible. And yet, we do so with the understanding that these are debated doctrines. That these aren't open and closed issues. That these aren't black and white. So let me give you an example of the two. When we talk about 
closed-handed doctrines, primary doctrines, necessary orthodox Christianity, we use in our, in our statement of faith uh, the Nicene Creed as an example of closed-handed or orthodox doctrines. The Nicene Creed was a creed that was put together by church council in the, in the 4th century, so in the 300s. So this is an over 1,500-year-old statement. And if you look at the original Nicene Creed as it was formulated first, so there's like four or five versions of it, but if you look at the original one, there basically is not a Christian on earth who would not affirm every word of it. Now, there are some Christians who would deaffirm the concept of a creed in general. That's our Anabaptist friends. But, but in terms of the actual doctrine stated, the Nicene Creed just walks to the Trinity. God is Father, creator of all. Creator of all. Jesus is the Son, begotten from God and not made, who made a way to life for us through his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. The Holy Spirit is God in spirit who dwells within the believer. Amen. That's basically it. And, and that kind of summarization of Christian doctrine, we say, listen, man, if you can't get behind that, Unitarians, I'm sorry. If you can't get behind the Trinity, like, we can't really talk. That's not really Christianity anymore. And that, that allows us to, to make hard dividing lines between what is and is not Christianity. And that's really important. I mean, that's really important. But we also have these open-handed doctrines that we're really passionate about because we've prayed and we've searched the Scripture and we believe they best reflect what the Scripture teaches. I'll give you a perfect example of this. Baptism. At Red Tree, we believe in what's called credo-baptism or believer's baptism. And we're passionate about it. In fact, it's a requirement for membership at Red Tree. You can't become a covenant member without experiencing believer's baptism. We believe that's important. We believe the scripture teaches and affirms that, that, that once you've professed Christ and you've been able to acknowledge that with, with, through reason, that you can actually publicly declare to the rest of the church, I have submitted my life to Christ and I'm showing you that I'm declaring that I am one of you. And the church can then collectively join with you and say, we affirm the spirit of God within you and we will join with you in community to help you seek after Christ. We believe the scripture teaches that and affirms that. But we also have tons of friends and brothers and sisters who are Lutherans and Presbyterians and Congregationalists who don't believe that. In fact, some of the theologians that we really respect don't believe that. Jonathan Edwards didn't believe that. And we love his work and we read his theology and we we learn from him, right? Because this is an open-handed doctrine. We would not look at our Presbyterian friends and go, sorry, you guys aren't Christians. Because they are. They obviously are. They, they affirm all these core orthodox beliefs, right? And so when we talk about this idea of how do we not tell them to stop? Because no one who does a work in my name. How, how do we engage that when we're talking about the importance of doctrine? The reality is there are some things that you do not, cannot, should not, will not move on. And we have to be okay with that. Christianity is not Christianity if you don't have our orthodox doctrine. It just isn't. But there are plenty of things, even things that will really upset you, even things that will make you really uncomfortable, that we have to, if we're going to submit to Jesus, just go, okay, okay. 
Like when we hang out with our Pentecostal friends who look at us and go, well, you've never actually received the baptism of the Holy Spirit because you've never expressed that through public prayer in tongues. And we go, what? (laughs) We have to be okay with the fact that that church teaches that and we disagree with it and we passionately disagree with it. And yet people are meeting Jesus and finding life and resurrection from the dead in that church. We have to be okay with that. Beloved, we do not have to not just be okay with that, we have to celebrate that. We have to celebrate that. That's people moving from death to life. Do you realize, there's the old pastor's joke about, about a, a, a guy who gets to heaven and, and uh, Jesus is giving him a tour and he's showing him all the different sections of heaven where the different denominations are hanging out, which by the way, it won't be that way. And, and he walks through the Catholic section and there's all this incense and it's beautiful and they walk through the charismatic section and everyone's jumping and, and shouting and they walk through this really quiet hallway and then there's this door closed that says, do not enter. And the guy goes, what's that? And he goes, that's the Baptist section, but you have to be quiet because they think they're the only ones here. <laughs> It's a dumb joke. It's a dumb joke. I get, one, I get like three of those a year. It's my privilege as a pastor. It's in my, in my compensation package. Uh, we have to be excited about the fact that when we get to heaven and we stand before Jesus, we will be astounded by how insanely wrong we are. And yet, through the grace and mercy of a loving God, he will joyfully accept us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we will look down at our ESV reference Bible and be like, man, I was really wrong about some stuff I thought I was really right about. And Jesus will be like, I know, it's crazy. Come on in. That's reality. And we have to celebrate that. And beloved, if you are worried about that, then let me give you comfort in the words of Jesus today. When we joyfully, not just, not just like tolerate and not just accept and not just get excited about, but when we joyfully pray for the work of the Spirit in churches that we passionately disagree with, then we are praying for the work of the kingdom. Because when the Holy Spirit moves supernaturally to save dead souls, people are drawn closer to the truth of Jesus. Bad doctrine cannot outweigh the power of the living God. So if you see a church that you passionately disagree with and you think they're really wrong about some stuff, it's probably pretty important. And God works in supernatural, powerful ways to save dead people there. When God does that work, those folk cannot help but be drawn to the actual person of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit moves in power in a heart, it will shine, high, like it will highlight like a black light, wrong doctrine in the heart and sin in the heart. When the Holy Spirit moves in power, it draws people to truth. So beloved, we can joyfully pray for churches in our community with excitement. Because when God moves in power, he draws people to truth. When God moves in power here, he draws us to truth. 
When God moves in power in churches all around our community, he draws people to truth. God is working through all these people, not just us. We're not the stars of the show. It's about the kingdom, and it's about the Jesus who made that kingdom possible. So here's what I want to encourage us with. You know, in, in his letter to the Philippian church, I love this scene. I love this scene. In his letter to the Philippian church, Paul, Paul calls out this hilarious thing where he's like, man, I'm, I'm in prison, and you know what's good? Like, I'm ministering to my prison guards, and like, God is being made known, and it's really cool. But I heard that there are these people who hated me, who like, now that I'm arrested, like, they're going out to preach Christ, like, just to spite me. Because like, I'm in prison, and they're not. And that, that image in and of itself is just like, what? <laughs> and I love Paul's response, where he just says, I love that. I love that. He goes, I'm missing it here. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's able to say that man, these guys whose hearts are in such a wrong place, who are so dead in their sin, who are preaching the gospel out of selfish motives, Paul's able to be like, <laughs> they're preaching Christ, who cares? That means people are getting saved. That's awesome. God will work in it. Whoa. That pushes some of our buttons, right? That makes us uncomfortable. Because we're good, conservative, reformed people and we really care about right doctrine. How can they possibly be preaching the real Christ if they're doing it from selfish motives? Because God's more powerful than their selfish motives. Because God is sovereign and he has called his children to him and he is working through flawed and broken people to resurrect the dead. So we can celebrate that. Here's what we're going to do today. Craig's going to come up and he's going to remind us why communion's important. And we're going to celebrate communion today. And, and here's what I love about communion. Communion draws the church together in total unity. There is not a church, a Christian church, in existence on earth that does not worship through communion. It is a totally unifying experience within God's church because Christ commanded it of all believers. There are believers in third world countries celebrating communion with crackers and coca-cola because that's all they have but we are sharing with them in the worship of our jesus whose body was broken for us whose blood was poured out for us and so today as we celebrate communion we're going to invite you guys to pray for the kingdom to pray for god to move in power in st louis in west county in the world and we're going to do that in part <coughs> by actually identifying and thinking about some of the churches that God has placed around our community and praying for the Holy Spirit to move in power at those churches. So Craig, you want to come up, introduce this to us, and we'll end out our time together. In case you missed... Something Sam said at the end there, he said, um, God is more powerful than our selfish motives. God is more powerful than our selfish motives. That is, that is good news. This is kingdom work, right? This is kingdom work. We use that phrase a lot. 
And it blows our categories, right? Some of our categories were probably dismantled today. I hope so. I hope God has started to maybe dismantle some of our categories. We, st- we stand on sound doctrine, but there are a lot of things that we stand on that we shouldn't. And we have brothers and sisters out there that are doing the work of the kingdom, and God is moving powerfully through other places that we want to be in unity with. Jesus blows away our categories. That's what he did when he came. He came and he completely changed the paradigm of what people were thinking. And that is what the gospel does. The gospel literally takes us upside down, inside out. The dead come to life. Those in darkness see light. We can praise him because that's happening here and it's happening at other places that we'll see pop up on our screen. And so I hope you heard what Sam said today, because this is kingdom work. This is unifying work, right? Christ came to unify. What, we're, what we celebrate today with communion is, is this unifying act of Jesus, right? He unifies us and he unites us back towards the Father. From the brokenness and the despair of our lives, he connects us back to our Heavenly Father. There, there are places in the Gospels where we can go to talk about and read through the institution of the Lord's Supper. But I like, I like to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul, Paul is in Corinth and there was a lot of problems in the Corinthian church. A lot of division, a lot of bad doctrine going on that he had to go in there and he had to correct. And one of the ways he did it in chapter 11 is he reminds them of who they are. And he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he takes his body, he takes the bread and he breaks the bread, symbolizing the broken and torn body of Jesus Christ. And that is what our bread and our crackers represent today. The body, the broken body of the Savior of mankind, broken for you and for me. Paul reminds them of that, this divisive and cantankerous and contentious community. He's reminding them of the unifying truth of the gospel in the body of Jesus Christ. He says in the same way, in the same way also he took the cup Jesus did after supper and he said this cup is the new covenant of my blood a paradigm change complete paradigm change old covenant to new covenant this is a new day do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. One of the reasons I love this passage is because that last phrase where it says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. When we take communion, we are proclaiming the gospel. And we are doing this with our other brothers and sisters at some of these churches, which you'll see up on the screen. Some of these you're going to look at and you're going to be like, I don't know about that. But listen to what Sam had said. God is more powerful And if people are coming from death to life and into the lightness from darkness, he's working through other people in other churches. And we have to celebrate that because Jesus is doing the work. God is doing the work. And so as we take these elements today, I want us to think about the fact that we proclaim the death until he comes, which means we're proclaiming the gospel. 
Because when we proclaim his death, we know that he didn't stay dead. Because it says until he comes. So we affirm that Jesus died, but he was resurrected and he ascended. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate that today. We are ministers of reconciliation. That doesn't just mean within the body. It means that. And some of us today, we need to examine our hearts because Paul goes on to talk about when we take in the Lord's Supper, let each person examine himself and so then eat the bread and drink the cup. Some of us need to examine our hearts for unity within our church. But many of us need to examine our hearts for unity outside of the church with what God is doing because we get very cloistered and focused in our little bitty huts of what we think God can only do through what we believe and how we believe and how we do it. So as we come up, the tables are open. As you come up, if you're a believer and you want to celebrate the gospel with us, I want to encourage you to do that. Take the elements, go back to your seat individually and examine yourself. Where are you as being a unifying force force for the kingdom of God. Are you a divisive force? Are you you a, a unifying force? Is God working in you to unite, to, to put away that edge that you get in your heart when you meet someone that thinks and looks and acts and feels differently than you are, but either they're a believer or God's working on them? Do you just have to step away because you just can't engage them? Check your heart. Examine your heart and ask God to soften that heart because God's moving in that person's life. So I invite you to come up, take the elements, go back to your seat and examine yourself in these areas. Folks, let's praise God that he's working in mighty ways. When we say, when we begin and we talk about we're a family of churches and we believe that and we celebrate that, but there are many more places that God is in and he is working and we have to rejoice in that. Because as we extend our lives and we love people and serve them and love them and they come to know Jesus, not all of them are going to come to our church and we have to be fine with that. Because there are other places that they're going to want to go. And we have to praise God in that. So I invite you to come up, take of the elements, examine yourself, and let's celebrate the gospel through the taking of the Lord's Supper this morning. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.